Listeners like you keep the Historian's Podcast on the internet by donating to our fund drive. Please click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Another one of our Highlights Edition, where we have uh, excerpts from several podcasts that were done uh, during this year of 2022. The first that we're going to play is from episode 433, which debuted July 29th of 2022, with Mary Zawaki, Executive Director of the Schenectady County Historical Society. We had a, a good reaction from Mary to the podcast and what happened after it was on the Internet. She uh, sent us a note that said, quote, Thanks so much. We've received so much positive attention for this. It was great chatting, Bob. What Mary talks about is a history of the Mohawk River, which, uh, you know, is an interesting uh, thing to think about. We talk about the Mohawk River all the time. Uh, when the last ice age began to melt 22,000 years ago, the Mohawk River flowed with more force than Niagara Falls. Hi, this is Mary Zawaki, uh, here from the Schenectady County Historical Society, and I'm excited to, to be chatting with you guys a little bit today about the history of the Mohawk River, especially as it relates to, uh, of course, Schenectady's history. There's been a lot of increase in interest in the river in the last, we'll say, half decade with the new developments, Mohawk Harbor, that sort of thing. Um, so it's always important with the, these new developments to pause and take a look back into the past and kind of figure out how we ended up here in the first place. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Mary Zawaki, who is Executive Director of the Schenectady County Historical Society. As soon as I uh, saw this in John Warren's uh, New York Almanac, I thought, what a great idea. I mean, we sort of talk around the Mohawk River, and it figures in a lot of stories, but uh, I can't remember ever talking with anybody about the history of the Mohawk River. <laughs> well, to, to be clear, I'm certainly not a geologist. You know, the really prehistoric history of the Mohawk River, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the one to chat with, but the more social and, and cultural history, um, again, as it, as it relates more to Schenectady and, and the surrounding areas. Yeah, I'd love to talk. Despite what you said, what about the uh, Mohawk River? What was the river like 20,000 years ago? When you go back 20,000 years, you're kind of talking about the Ice Age. Um, and so a lot of upstate New York, all of upstate New York really was under ice or in a glacier. Um, so what ended up carving the valley was when the ice age kind of started to recede, you had a lot of ice melting. And uh, that deluge of water was released. And it was so great that it, uh, it carved out right through, through our Mohawk Valley an entirely new riverbed. And that's... Uh, that's that's kind of the short history of the very long history of the, of the Mohawk River. And they had a different name. I mean, it's based on Mohawk. I don't know who. The geologists call it, what, the Iro Mohawk? Yeah. The Iro Mohawk, right, exactly. And it was, I mean, the, the volume of water, I think, is almost unimaginable uh, today. It certainly was not a placid, a placid river like, like it is in the uh, 21st century. <laughs> When did the river finally settle down? That's way back in the, in the prehistory uh, of the area. But certainly by the time people were 
beginning to settle here and make their home here, uh, we were we were dealing with the Placid River, and and of course by the time we had the first settlers and colonists coming over from Europe, um, it was a very placid river. And so was the, was the river as we know it when uh, the Dutch, for example, came here in sixteen hundreds, or or what? I mean, the, the landscapes or did it look the same as it does today? Not not exactly. Not exactly. There's been a lot of man-made changes to the Mohawk River um, in the past, let's say, 400 years, uh, starting with, again, the, the very um, earliest settlers who created sort of fishing weirs within the river to be able to more easily capture fish. Even from the 1600s, people were kind of manipulating the land because it was, it was an important waterway, right? And that's, that's kind of the key thing here with talking about the history uh, of the Mohawk River. It is such a key waterway to the development of New York State and to really the development of the country because, you know, the reason we had these these settlers coming over from from Europe was to trade first, to trade pelts. And that's only going to be possible if they can access the interior of the country where all of these animals were living. Moving along, our next excerpt is from episode 434, which was debuted on August 5th of 2022. NBC TV has aired an episode of their family history show, Who Do You Think You Are?, that includes scenes filmed in Fonda and Johnstown. Actor Nick Offerman, who plays Ron Swanson in the sitcom Parks and Recreation, traced his ancestors to families from upstate New York, Kelly Yakabuchi Farquhar, Montgomery County, New York historian, explains in this uh, interview or this segment why Fonda's old courthouse is a mecca for genealogists and upstate New York historians. Uh, Kelly said, it all began with a call from who do you think you are? They reached out to me a few years ago to do some research, and I didn't know what I, I knew what I was doing the research on, but I didn't know who it was for. So it, we worked together for a number of months, and then they approached me about coming here to do filming. Eventually, you met the man that they're working on, if you will, or his ancestry, Nick Offerman. Who was he descended from around here? The earlier descendants that you can you can see on the show, or I'm, I'm sorry, the earlier ancestors, were a couple by the name of Bartholomew Pickard and Eva Kloss, or Clausen. He, I believe he said it was his eight times great-grandfather and grandmother. The research that I had done focused on their grandson, Joseph Maybe, who is Nick Offerman's direct ancestor. There's so many aspects to this story. I hope we don't go too far adrift. The Mohawks, the indigenous people who lived here, complained, did they not, about how Offerman's ancestors, especially the woman you mentioned, Eva, how, how she treated them. What was their, their complaint about her? Their complaint was that she had owned a tavern around the area with what we today know as Indian Castle, um, which is actually in Herkimer County. And they complained that she would get them drunk and have them sign away their land. The Mohawks kind of received a respectful uh, audience at the time when they made these complaints. 
because the audience, I don't know if it was him exactly or him directly, but he probably was told about it, was a man named Sir William Johnson, who was uh, on the side of Britain. He was from overseas, but he was the Indian agent for the British government and in general had good relations with the Mohawk. He, Mohawks. He was uh, not pleased to hear this, I gather. I believe there are a number of letters or, or correspondences in his Sir William Johnson papers that refer to this issue with Eva Pickard and the, the Mohawks. And I believe eventually she was removed from the land. You know, it took a number of years, but, but she was removed. And then later on, uh, her grandson, Joseph Maybe, was able to re- essentially recover a lot of that land for his service in the Revolutionary War. Well, that's the another the other interesting point. Uh, what intervenes here is the American Revolution, and uh, Johnson, who died before the revolution actually began, but his family, uh, they were among the people who were defeated in the revolution by the uh, rebels or the patriots or whatever. So things keep changing, and so this ancestor of Offerman uh, is now making claims to the land, which after the war. Uh, the uh, U.S., the new U.S. government uh, agrees to. He he gets the land, right? Yeah, yeah. He was granted a patent for, like I said, essentially, I think it was most of the land that uh, they had originally lost. Um, and it was called the Maybe Patent. In the TV show, they, they kind of end the TV show with Mr. Offerman and some of his relatives, a couple of uh, female relatives of Offerman, coming back and sort of standing on the land, I guess, that their ancestors uh, occupied. And as you said, it's in Herkimer County, a place called Danube, which is really just over the border from uh, Minden in Montgomery County? Yeah, correct. It Actually, it had been originally part of Montgomery County. Our next excerpt comes from episode 435, which debuted on August 12th of 2022 with Suzanne Dunlap discussing her book, The Portraitist, a novel based on the life of 18th century French artist Adelaide Lebel Giard, whose life went on amid the changes and the terror of the French Revolution. This is Suzanne Dunlap. I am the author of the forthcoming book, The Portraitist, a novel of Adelaide La Bigiar, which will be published by She Writes Press on August 30th. And I'm so happy to be a guest here today to talk a little bit about the history behind this book, which is absolutely fascinating as it takes place before, during, and after the French Revolution. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Author Suzanne Dunlop joins us to discuss her book, The Portraitist, a novel based on the life of Adelaide Labille Guillard. Um, she was a portraitist, but that means that she painted pictures? What that means is she made, painted portraits of people. That was her speciality. The thing about art in 18th century, in, in the middle of the 18th century in France, it was all sort of uh, controlled by the academy. And there were different categories of painters. And the highest category you could be, actually artists in general, the highest category you could be was a history painter. 
women couldn't be history painters because they weren't allowed to take the classes at the Louvre uh, that studied anatomy, that studied the male nude. So it was deemed that they were not allowed to be history painters. So a lot of women who were artists chose instead to become portraitists and to concentrate on uh, doing portraits of royalty, nobles, commoners, whatever. And so that's why they were, uh, that's why the portraitist, rather than the artist or the painter. Was she good at it? Oh, <laughs> yes. She was very good at it. She was, she was actually, after the revolution, she was the first woman artist to be uh, given accommodations in the Louvre, which was a great privilege. And men had had that privilege for a long time. Uh, the Louvre at the time was not a museum. It was a place that had lots of offices and apartments and studios in it. And uh, artists in the academy, male, male artists, often were given free accommodations there where they had studios and they lived and they taught. But Adelaide had tried to get that before the revolution, before everything blew up, and was unsuccessful because of the man who ran everything absolutely hated the idea of women artists and said that it would be a, a sort of a bad influence to have women <clears throat> in those studios in the Louvre. But she did have studios in the Louvre, no? After the revolution. Before uh. the revolution, she wanted them and wasn't allowed to have them. Then in 1795, when she came back to Paris after the revolution, she was awarded those studios. She was also an, an activist, uh, a feminist. Uh, was she a revolutionary? Uh, she wasn't a revolutionary. I mean, she was active at the beginning, and especially in reforms. She was trying to get reforms to the academy itself done. She was very sympathetic with um, the delegates to the National Convention, the sort of moderate people, the um, Girondists, so to speak, as opposed to the Montagnards, which were the ones that Robespierre you know, became the head of and that ended up killing everybody. <laughs> so, um, so she, she was there. But, but what was interesting about that is that she relied for her income a lot on portraits of people in the royal family. She was the official portraitist for Mesdames, the king's aunts. From the French Revolution in episode 435 with Suzanne Dunlap, we move on to episode 436, uh, first debuted on The Historians and our website, bobcudmore.com, on August 19th. The guest is Stephen Williams, author of Off the North Way, which is a new book, a collection of newspaper columns written by Williams, who retired after 42 years at the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. One of the principal topics is the history of Global Foundries, the semiconductor facility in Malta, which employs 3,000 people, and Global Foundries is planning a second plant at its Luther Forest location. My name is Stephen Williams. I was a reporter at the Daily Gazette in Schenectady for 42 years. I recently retired, and I am the author of a new book called off the North Way, which is a collection of 83 of the newspaper columns that I wrote for the Daily Gazette, 
over a decade as a columnist between 2005 and 2016. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We uh, welcome Steve Williams uh, to talk about his book, Off the Northway, same name as the, as the column, Off the Northway, which he did for many years for the Daily Gazette. One of the topics I want to get right into that I don't know that much about, although it's an important part of local history, is the history of how global foundries came to be. Uh, let, me, let me just start by asking you, can you give us, what is Global Foundries? What do they do when they're located off the Northway in the town of Malta? That's correct, Bob. Global Foundries is a worldwide manufacturer of uh, semiconductor chips. I mean, what you and I would call computer chips, which came to the town of Malta in 2009, went through a lengthy process to get approvals and to construct what in the end has become a $15 billion factory where 3,000 people work. And I mean, right now they are in serious discussions about building a second plant right there. They are applying for town approvals and they are looking for funding from the federal and state governments to help pay for the plant, which is, again, going to be a multi-billion dollar plant. With the history stories that I've read, written over the years for the Gazette, primarily about the Amsterdam area, I'm talking about usually the carpet industry or broom making or these old processes which aren't here anymore. I mean, this really is the the new wave, or this is, uh, I don't know what... Would you say that uh, Global Foundries is kind of the new GE in the area? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that would be very accurate because, I mean, this uh, plant has brought enormous number of jobs and enormous amount of change to central Saratoga County. Uh, I wrote a piece when I retired in which I said it's probably the biggest private investment uh, change to this. Uh, region since uh, Thomas Edison came and uh, was scouted Schenectady for General Electric. Let me bring in uh, Dave Green just for a moment, often a silent partner on the production of the Storians podcast. But Dave, you live in the in the town of Malta, and you, in a sense, were there when they started building this plant. The, the one note you can make about global foundries is you would, living in the town, you would never know there were 3,000 people working there. Well, and Steve Williams, let me ask you about that. I mean, it, I think Dave once told me, you know, you can walk by the plant and you don't really hear much of anything. It's not like they're making steel. I mean, if you used, were to walk by uh, the old GE, I mean, of course, they still make the turbines and uh, generators some, but it's noisy uh, industry. This particular industry is quiet. Very quiet. It's very clean. I mean, in fact, I mean, they work in what is called a clean room which is uh, said to be 100 times more sanitary and clean than a hospital operating room because the computer chips they're making are in tiny circuits. You know, a hundredth the width of a hair would be about how big these circuits are. From Stephen Williams, episode 436, we go to episode 437, which features me. I thought it was about time I did something for the podcast. Uh, What I also do is I write a weekly 
history column about Montgomery and Fulton counties for the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam uh, Recorder. And every so often, I'll uh, take some of my uh, stories from the newspaper column and do a podcast. Dave Green and I call it a chit-chat podcast because Dave is usually uh, sitting there, well, as he always is, but sometimes uh, chimes in on what we're talking about. And in this particular excerpt, we hear stories about Amsterdam's connections with Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, is very much in the news. And Ukrainians uh, came to Amsterdam, relatively speaking, a long time ago. Ukrainians in Amsterdam, New York. The first Ukrainians to migrate to Amsterdam did so about 1903. St. Nicholas Brotherhood formed in 1907 with 26 members from Amsterdam and other communities. Construction of St. Nicholas Ukrainian Catholic Church in Amsterdam began that year on Pulaski Street. The church was dedicated in 1910. It was finished and dedicated. And there were about 70 Ukrainian-American families in Amsterdam before World War I. In 1914, the Sisterhood of the Immaculate Conception of Mary was started. The first president was Anna Quas. And here's a, a, a left turn in the story. I'm just telling you about Amsterdam and when the Ukrainian-Americans came and how many there were, so on and so forth. I have yet to divulge this fact. My uncle by marriage, Peter Segan, was Ukrainian. One of his daughters, Barbara Segan Gould, wrote, quote, He was born in Galicia, a province of Ukraine sandwiched between Poland and Austria-Hungary. In 1898, when he was born, the region was ruled by Austria-Hungary, but I remember him saying that its government regularly switched from Austria-Hungary to Poland to Ukraine. Dad proudly called himself Ukrainian and let no one call him anything else. My cousin, Barbara Segan Gould, lives in Connecticut. She has two sisters, uh, Betty Pronk and Margaret Heisert, who live in the Amsterdam area. A brother, John, died years ago. Uh, Barbara Segan Gould wrote, Upon the death of his parents... The farm on which my dad grew up, listen to this, was left to either his oldest brother or the two older brothers, leaving Peter out of the equation altogether. Dad was 18 in 1916, and with a young uncle, who I believe was about 30 years old, they decided to emigrate. They made it to Hamburg, Germany. I presume they walked there, and they stowed away on a passenger ship bound for New York. They were discovered and had to work for their passage. Segan Gould uh, wrote, Upon landing at Ellis Island, Dad and his uncle went through the usual screenings and although without papers, were allowed to remain in the United States. Peter left Ellis Island to work for a coal mining company in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He developed tuberculosis and was sent uh, to a convalescent home. And the convalescent home is up here in the Mohawk Valley. 
It was called Mount Loretto, was located on Sward Hill Road in the town of Amsterdam, New York. My mother's sister, Jane Cook, was a cook at Mount Loretto, and she and Peter met, and they were married in the 1930s. They moved to a small house, I was going to say nearby Mount Loretto, it was actually a bit of a distance, uh, but their house was on Turuna Road, which is a very unspellable name, Turuna Road. Our last excerpt in this Highlights uh, podcast is episode 438, uh, which debuted on September 2nd, featuring Ricardo Herrera, who was author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. Herrera is visiting professor at the U.S. Army War College of Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, previously a professor of military history at the Army Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm Rick Herrera, author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. And this is a book about the maturation of George Washington's leadership as a general, as a strategist, and as a commander of the army. It's also a retelling of the very familiar tale of Valley Forge, but in exposing new things that you may not have known. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. As he said, Rick Herrera, author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. How did the army end up spending that winter? in Valley Forge. Thanks for asking that, Bob. And uh, before I go on, a little bit that I am required to say, nothing that I say reflects the views of the U.S. Army War College, the U.S. Army, or the U.S. government. They are strictly my own. And I hope that they don't reflect the Continental Army. I don't want to give away any secrets of George Washington. In any case, um, Washington uh, selects Valley Forge after a trying campaign, the uh, Philadelphia campaign of 1777, the uh, British had landed near Head of Elk, Maryland in August of 1777 and started marching toward Philadelphia, the American capital. Washington fought them in a series of battles, and in each one, he successfully managed to lose. That said, though, he was able to avoid the Army's destruction, which is something that General uh, Sir William Howe, the British commander, was really trying to do. But he also, the Army also held together pretty well despite these successive defeats. So here it is, December of 1777. Washington draws up the Army on a wonderful uh, ridge line at White Marsh, Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia. He wants the British to have one go at him. He's set up. His army is dug in. His soldiers are waiting. General Howe marches his army out, looks at the defenses, and says, I think not. He had memories of uh, Bunker Hill back in June of 1775, in which he had personally led the attacks. Uh, a phenomenally brave man. He had a sense not to destroy, not to destroy his army in attacks against Americans in fortifications. So, Hal marches back. Washington talks to his generals. He asks them, essentially, what's next, gentlemen? 
he is actually he was actually contemplating a winter campaign. That's Ricardo Herrera, author of a book about uh, George Washington's army surviving the winter of 1778 at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And that'll do it for this uh, episode of uh, a Highlights podcast, Highlights number four uh, for 2022. We uh, debut a new podcast every Friday. The uh, center of activity for us is our website, bobcudmore.com. You can give to uh, GoFundMe, find out what's uh, coming up. Uh, Thank you very much for, for listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.